planet is heating up, so why is the temperature going down? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. across the Midwest are scrambling to protect people from this deadly polar vortex that is blasting the region. Plunging to as low as 70 degrees below zero in some cities. Tomorrow you'll be trading your t-shirts for a thick coat. Recent low temperatures throughout the U.S. have hijacked everything from air travel to postal delivery. With people bundling up across the country, awareness of climate change and what's causing it is headed for the back burner. Maybe it's time for a refresher course. And when we put CO2 into the atmosphere, it's like a blanket around the surface of the Earth. And we're switching now from a lightweight summer blanket to a down comforter. And that effect is cranking up the temperature of the planet. On today's program, we'll hear from climate scientists, communicators, and educators about why, after one of the hottest years on record, the country has suddenly gone into deep freeze. And later in the program, we'll bust some common climate myths. We start things off with Catherine Mock, a senior research scientist at Stanford University, and Ben Santer, a climate scientist with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Here's Greg Dalton. So we're going to go through a list of, uh, a list of basic questions about how this all works, starting with Catherine Mock. Uh, explain for us, for people who are fuzzy or need a refresher or just not sure, how does burning fossil fuels heat the planet? So when we burn fossil fuels, we put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So what? It's a long-lived heat-trapping gas. So think of the Earth's Earth system. Sunlight is heading straight towards us, and a lot of that solar energy is bouncing straight back out to space, but some of it is absorbed by the land, by the oceans, by the atmosphere. And when we put CO2 into the atmosphere, it's like a blanket around the surface of the Earth, and we're switching now from a lightweight summer blanket to a down comforter, and that effect is cranking up the temperature of the planet. Ben Santer, how do we know the world has warmed in the last 100 years? We have literally millions of measurements. We have measurements of surface temperature over the lands, over the oceans. We measure temperature in the depths of the ocean. We have weather balloons and satellites that measure the temperature of the atmosphere. We look at water vapor, we look at ice, we look at winds, you name it, we look at it. If you're a climate scientist, that's what you do. And all of this data together tells us that the planet has warmed by about two degrees Fahrenheit uh, over the last century and a half. And the other data, the ice changes, the increase in the moisture in the atmosphere, the changes in winds, fits with that warming Earth information that we have. So if you're a climate scientist, it's the, the consistency of the evidence, the richness of the story in temperature, in moisture, in winds, in ice, that tells us something unusual is happening. So data, data everywhere saying basically the same thing. Data, data everywhere. You mentioned the 1995 report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the uh, famous or infamous conclusion that the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. Well, back then, 24 years ago, critics said, you folks are just looking at surface temperature. If there really is a human-caused climate change signal lurking in observations, go and look in many other things, not just at surface thermometer records. And that's indeed what's happened in the last 24 years. And the message from all of the data is 
Natural causes don't cut it. They can't explain what we've measured and monitored. Only a strong human influence on climate can explain the data. So that's the, the human fingerprints. What, ben Santer, what percentage of climate change is caused by humans? There's been some debate now about how much of it is natural cycles, how much of it is human activity. Do we really know the, the percentage of nature versus human? Yeah, we do. That's what people like me and some of my colleagues in the audience spend our entire lives doing, trying to tease out the human effect and say, how large is it? And our best understanding is that over the last 60 or 70 years, say since 1950, the human contribution to global warming far outstrips any natural effect due to changes in the sun, volcanoes, natural cycles. The human influence is predominant, and that's led to conclusions like from the most recent IPCC report in 2013, that uh, it's extremely likely, greater than 95% probability that we're right, that humans are responsible for most of the warming since uh, roughly 1950. Catherine Mock, if humans stopped burning all fossil fuels today, what would happen to the atmosphere? Would it continue to warm? Would it, would it cool? If we turned them all off today, what would happen? So carbon dioxide and these other long-lived heat-trapping gases are pretty different as compared to some of the traditional pollutants that we think about in terms of things that damage our lungs, for example. So when we put CO2 into the atmosphere, some of it gets sopped up by the land, some of it gets sopped up by the ocean, but as it drops in concentration through time, the oceans become less able to take up heat. So that means that when we put CO2 into the atmosphere, the warming from that emission is nearly permanent, centuries and millennia out. So if we were to drop emissions to zero tomorrow, we've got this warming commitment, about one degree Celsius, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, temperature increase that we've seen since pre-industrial times. The commitment in the climate system means that we could see a few fractions of a degree more, but some of the commitment also will be in the fact that there's a lot of inertia in the oceans, and sea level rise also will proceed for decades and centuries, and that will be all the more so if we put more carbon dioxide and heat-trapping gas into the atmosphere. So it, there's a lot of momentum baked into the system that's going to keep warming for a long time. But it's critically important to recognize that maybe the fiercest momentum we're dealing with in the climate challenge is not necessarily that temperature inertia that we were just talking about. It's actually the inertia of our human systems. It's almost uh, hypothetical to think about dropping emissions to zero tomorrow. We'd crash the global economy. So this inertia is our technological systems, our economic systems, as well as our climate system. And we'll get to some of those other systems. Uh, cold weather's been in the news a lot lately, prompting one person to tweet about bringing back global warming. We talked to some people on the street in Oakland about how they view the weird weather lately. Cities across the Midwest are scrambling to protect people from this deadly polar vortex that is plunging to as low as 70 degrees below zero in some cities. Tomorrow you'll be trading your t-shirts for a thick coat. It's so cold outside, the U.S. Postal Service, which almost never stops delivering, suspending service in 11 Midwestern states. My name is Tony. I'm from the Oakland Bay Area. You think because it's called global warming, you think we're supposed to be hot all the time. For me, I believe the global warming is a shift in the entire globe's, the entire Earth's temperature, which affects it all year round. And I feel like the colder temperatures have been lasting a lot longer because of all the things that we're doing to our environment. My name is Claudia, and I live in North Oakland, just on the border by Emeryville. I grew up in Germany, and we had all four seasons. 
Now I see uh, January, February, it's getting cold, it snows. And now suddenly they're having like 70 degrees where my dad lives in Cologne, Bonn. You know, and but a week before it was snowing and glaciers are melting. So definitely it's global warming. Something is going on. People on the street we talked to in Oakland, California. Ben Santer, your reaction to what people are expressing there? Something's happening, kind of weird. They sort of get it. Your thoughts on what you heard there from those people? Signal plus noise. So we always knew, uh, as Catherine said, that when we burn fossil fuels and increase levels of heat-trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the planet's going to warm. And we've measured and monitored that. We predicted that with climate models. But we also know that every year is not going to get inexorably warmer than the previous year. Even with human effects on climate, there will be natural month-to-month, year-to-year, decade-to-decade noise in the climate system. So the challenge is explaining that to people, that there is this warming signal, but there's also going to be natural variability. And human-caused global warming does not invalidate winter. (laughs) We're still going to have winter. So explaining these basic concepts of signal and noise is challenging. Catherine, mock your take for someone who says, you know, global warming, I get it, but gosh, it's really cold. You know, people are kind of a little confused. Uh, how do you explain to people, ask you, like, I thought it's really, un- it's freakishly cold in some parts of the United States. We heard the U.S. Postal Service stopping service, which they rarely do. Your explanation of that. So the classic line that scientists often use in terms of these definitions is that climate is what you would expect and weather is what you get. So what do we know about climate and what we can expect? It's getting warmer. We see that in a lot of different ways. There are more hot days, fewer cold days. There are more heat extremes, fewer cold extremes or lower numbers of them. There are more heat waves, fewer cold waves. But at the same time, this changing climate also involves changes that are surrounding these concepts that we think of as winter. So what's happening with storms? We know for sure that a warmer atmosphere holds more water so we can get much heavier downpours. In general, we're seeing less snowpack across the U.S. However, there are some parts of the U.S., the northern U.S., where we're actually seeing some years with more extreme snowfall. Similarly, atmospheric rivers smacking the west coast of the U.S. are increasing in frequency and intensity. So all these things that we think of as cold winter actually can be interconnected in this really complex dynamic system. We're unpacking basic climate science for you at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Catherine Mock, a senior research scientist at Stanford University, and Ben Santer, an atmospheric scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Ben Santer, why does the Arctic matter to someone if they're never going to go there? Well, I go there. (laughs) (laughs) I go there almost every year to the Juneau Icefield in Alaska, in part to witness, to see with my own eyes, not just with computer models of the climate system or satellites, the -the on-the-ground reality of glacial retreat. But I think the real answer to your question is because the Arctic also affects us here. As Catherine mentioned, we are changing the global scale structure of atmospheric temperature. We're warming high latitudes, the Arctic, more than low latitudes. That is affecting winds and circulation patterns. And there's some evidence that the melting of Arctic sea ice and retreat of Arctic sea ice 
is influencing us here in California and potentially even rainfall in California. So as folks have said, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. We know that very well. There are links between the tropic and, and Arctic, and there are links between the Arctic and what happens in the tropics. So that's of concern, should be of concern to all of us here since we depend so profoundly on, on rainfall for agriculture and many aspects of our livelihoods here in California. Do scientists know if the jet stream is changing, if it's getting wobbly, is that uh, affecting the jet streams changing? Is there more turbulence in air travel? I would say the jury is still out on that. There's a lot of work that's been done in the last couple of years to try and understand that waviness, whether the jet stream, in part because of the meltback of Arctic sea ice and the heat that is then released when you melt back sea ice from the ocean into the atmosphere, whether those kind of large-scale changes are affecting uh, things like the behavior of the jet stream, both latitude, speed, and waviness. But the jury is still out on that. Certainly it is plausible, um, I would say even likely, that as we change the structure of the atmosphere, the temperature gradients between the Arctic and the tropics in such a massive way, we're going to see other changes too. Catherine uh, Mock, how is climate related to fires ravaging the American West? There are a lot of ingredients that are relevant to fire risk. So first of all, we have this long history of fire suppression. What does that do? It seems like it keeps you safe in the near term, but it actually piles up the fuel that could burn when a fire does occur. We also are really good at building in what's called the WUI. I really like this acronym. So I normally don't use acronyms, but it's a pretty good one. The Wildland Urban Interface. Basically spaces where you think it's nature, but instead we're putting houses right there. That increases the likelihood of ignition. So despite the fact that fire is complex, a hotter, drier climate drives up risk, and we are indeed seeing that up and down the western US where we have more large fires. There's some really exciting dimensions of the science that have been unfolding recently, looking, for example, at what's happening with nighttime temperatures. And if the fire doesn't die down over the night, what does that mean for the entire pattern of the fire burning? What happens when it's in the particular seasons when you're most likely to get a fire igniting if you've got hot, dry conditions with winds blowing? So it's an active area of research, and it's also one that's really pushing our responses. How do we get people out in time? How do we make sure neighborhoods and households and whole communities are safe? I've interviewed some uh, firefighters here recently who talk about career fires. It used to be that like, they'd have, in the 30-year uh, career of a firefighter, they'd have one really mega fire, and that would be kind of define their career. And, and now those mega fires are happening, those what they call career fires are happening like almost every year. Things that used to happen once in your career are happening once a year for firefighters. Ben Santer, what impact does global warming have on oceans? Well, it's warming the world's oceans. And again, that's one of the things we've measured and monitored, both at the surface, but increasingly since about the beginning of this century with these very, very beautiful uh, things called Argo floats that you plop in the ocean and they make measurements as they descend to depth of temperature and salinity. Then they come back up and phone home <laughs> and transmit their data and go back down again. And those um, floats have enabled scientists to look at parts of the world ocean that were really understudied previously, like the Southern Ocean um, around Antarctica, and try and understand how temperature and salinity are changing. 
The other major thing in the ocean is it's acidifying. Uh, again, as Catherine mentioned, we know that when we burn fossil fuels and increase levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, some of that atmospheric CO2 is drawn down by the ocean and, uh, and changes the pH, makes the ocean more acidic. That has profound implications for uh, many organisms with calcareous shells uh, that evolved to exist in a certain tolerance of pH, and now we're changing that pH really rapidly. That's concerning. Catherine Mock, when sea ice melts, it doesn't change the level of seas, but tell us what will happen if the Greenland ice sheet melts quickly. We've got two ice sheets on planet Earth, Greenland and Antarctica, and they evolve in some complex ways. They can accumulate snow on their surface. They can also melt. But additionally, even though ice sounds like it's really hard, it actually flows. So what we know about Greenland is it may well have a threshold beyond which there's a commitment to long-term loss of this massive ice sheet, which would lead to 20 feet of sea level rise over millennia. But in terms of really quick near-term considerations, actually some of the most wide open uncertainties in the next few decades, actually really this century, are surrounding the West Antarctic. We expect about one to four feet of sea level rise by year 2100. But if that irreversible threshold dimensions of the flow and collapse of the West Antarctic goes faster rather than slower, the maximum physically plausible amount of sea level rise that could happen by year 2100 is eight feet. That's a lot. Ben Santer, there's been some debate recently about Antarctic sea ice expanding and some, some myths around that. So tell us about, you know, is the Antarctic ice expanding? So the Antarctic is very different from the Arctic. The Arctic is pretty much an enclosed basin. The Antarctic isn't. Uh, it's got no big land masses close to it. Uh, we know that by um, depleting ozone in the stratosphere, we're changing the, the winds, the circulation around Antarctica, and that's partially responsible for the changes in Antarctic sea ice. We know, as we hear almost every day, <laughs> that with melting um, <clears throat> uh, of land ice and melting from below of Antarctic ice shelves floating in water, some of those ice shelves are breaking up, and some of that is contributing to Antarctic sea ice. So. The Antarctic is a much different beast in terms of its sea ice extent than the Arctic. But the bottom line is there's no fundamental uh, mismatch between our understanding of Antarctic sea ice changes and human effects on climate. This is the kind of thing you might expect to see as you break up and melt massive ice shelves, as you melt land on ice over Antarctica. Catherine Mock, how is climate change affecting food production? As you might expect, food production, whether it's agriculture or fisheries or aquaculture, is a human endeavor that is intimately connected with the climate. And that's the case whether you're talking temperature, how much rainfall there is, levels of CO2, what's going on with pests, what's going on with the quality of the soil. So to date, we've seen both places that have increases in crop yield due to the climate dimensions that I just was unfolding, and places that have seen decreases. On net, we've seen more decreases than increases, especially for crops like corn and wheat. Into the future, those dimensions intensify in a world where there will be a lot more demand for food, in particular linked to different choices around whether people are going to eat 
cows or vegan diets, for example. But we know that in many ways, it's not necessarily those of us sitting here in this audience who are going to really feel the impacts of these changes in food production. Food security brings in all these dimensions of food access and food prices, and you really want to ask poorer populations in urban and rural areas, do they have access to food in a world where these dimensions are changing? How about the rural livelihoods, where there may be some places that are better off as the climate changes, but that may be very different from the farmer stuck on the ground in a place that is no longer as productive. Ben Santer, do climate scientists ignore key uncertainties, as some critics claim? Absolutely not. Uncertainties are an integral part of everything that we do. It's like the Geico uh, ad. If you're a climate scientist, that's what you do. You study uncertainties in the data, in the models, uh, in the statistical methods that you use to compare data and models. You're always kicking the tires trying to figure out whether you're wrong. We're our own fiercest critics, Greg. So the notion that scientists somehow are never concerned with uncertainties, and it takes people like Senator Ted Cruz to point those uncertainties out to us, is ridiculous. Catherine Mock, what region will be least affected by rising temperatures, which is a way of saying, where should we run to? The impacts of a changing climate are pervasive. There's no continent that's untouched. If you want to talk, well, who's most affected? It really depends on what metric you're thinking about. So for example, some people care about the systems that will be lost coral reefs, what happens to Venice. They may not extend very far geographically. If you put a monetary value on those systems, it might be small in the global balance, but there's an irreversibility there. In other cases, it's about extremes, where no matter what, if the extremes are pushing beyond the bounds of what your city is de designed for or your agricultural system is designed for, you're going to feel the impacts. These types of impacts have aggregate effects. So if you are a global company and you have a supply chain that stretches around the world, even if you're sitting in New York City as your headquarters, it may be th the case that a monsoon around the world will actually affect your business bottom line. So climate change is a challenge that unifies us and it's not one where we can easily kick the can down the road without ex expecting some very widespread consequences that we'll have to deal with. Uh, one last really serious question uh, for Catherine Mock. How is global warming affecting the number of home runs in professional baseball? Greg, I think you've given me this question before. Um, <laughs> well, depends how you want to look at the issues. I'm not going to give a definitive answer here, but so for example, we know that pitchers throwing balls feel increased aggression when it's really hot. So there are some dimensions there that's changing up the baseball game, and it's really coming down to climate and conflict. In other cases, it's a balance of a thinner atmosphere, but more water, uh, water in it. And that's the one where I'm not going to have the right answer, but Ben might. Your thoughts, Ben? Yeah, this is a curveball. This is not one that we planned on. This was a curveball for Catherine. But there's quite a debate about whether warmer temperatures uh, is affecting that because there, there's, there's charts that show the number of home runs in professional baseball and could be correlation, not causation. Ben Sandra, thoughts on home runs in baseball? Gee, well, uh, Catherine might have been asked this question before, but I never have. I, I would say uh, one factoid here. I seem to recall that in the last baseball season, uh, during one or two days in Los Angeles, it was actually too hot to play ball, right? That. Uh, is, that, is, is that correct? So that's the kind of thing we can expect to see in future. As Catherine mentioned, we are changing the ratio of uh, hot records to cold records in favor of hot records. 
And that change, as we inexorably warm the planet, is going to become ever more apparent. So there will be um, baseball stadiums in which, for certain times of the year, you can't play ball. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation with Ben Santer, climate scientist with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Catherine Mock, senior research scientist at Stanford University. There's still a lot of misinformation surrounding climate change. Our next two guests are here to do some myth-busting. David Fenton is the founder of Fenton Communications. He's been an advisor to Nelson Mandela, Al Gore, and others on how to shape their messages for social change. Anne Reed is executive director of the National Center for Science Education, a nonprofit group that helps teachers present accurate science in their classrooms. Here's their conversation with Greg Dalton. David Fenton, one of the most common myths is the climate is always changing. It's changed before. What's the, your answer to that? Yeah, it's not just a myth. It's an industry intentional talking point because they know that that confuses people because, of course, it's true the climate has always changed before, but it's never changed like this since the dawn of human civilization, which is the point. It has changed before from planetary orbital changes and volcanic activity, um, but that was before we were around. Uh, and by the way, when it, there were large changes, uh, it caused various extinctions, and this is what we face potentially now because... Uh, we are now the ones changing it. Um, and, uh, and here's how much we're changing it. Uh, so uh, we are the energy that we are trapping on Earth that used to be able to go back out to space, uh, that, when we're, that we're trapping because of the uh, gases from fossil fuels. Here's how much energy it's trapping on Earth. It's the energy equivalent of 500,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs going off in the Earth's atmosphere every day. That's how much it is. And so obviously that's a lot of energy. So no wonder the storms are getting stronger and all this weather is intensifying because that's a lot of energy. But unfortunately, we don't talk about it that simply for the public. And if we did, I think more people would understand. David Finton, another uh, myth is that there is no consensus. There's no scientific consensus. What's what's. Well, that's another intentional piece of black propaganda that was spread on purpose uh, by the oil uh, uh, companies and coal companies once they actually figured out that their products were changing the climate. Uh, They figured this out decades ago, and so they decided to confuse the public about it. This is all well documented, and there are court cases going on now uh, about this. And so they borrowed from the playbook from the tobacco industry, uh, which when the uh, evidence on tobacco's carcinogenicity started to become very popular, the industry would say, well, scientists don't agree, doctors don't agree. They spread doubt on purpose. There's a great book about this called Merchants of Doubt and a film about it too. So they did this very intentionally. And so if you poll people today, only 12% of the American public know that there's scientific consensus on climate change. They still think that there's no agreement. And that was intentional, and uh, that was their strategy, and it worked. And Reed, what are some of the myths that you see in your work working with educators around the country? What are some of the climate myths that, that you see? Well, it's um, important to recognize how um, decentralized the American education system is. So any mm-hmm. given um, middle school or high school science teacher uh, could be facing a, an entirely different 
um, mm -hmm. situation in, in his or her classroom. This one that, that David just talked about, that the science isn't settled, that's a question we specifically asked uh, teachers when we surveyed middle and high school science teachers um, in 2015. And uh, I'm, th I'm thrilled to say that instead of 12%, 40% of teachers were aware that the science is settled. That's 40% of science teachers. Um, this mm -hmm. campaign to sow doubt has been extraordinarily successful. Yeah, so, only 40%, um, wow. Yeah, so that, that means that when they go to teach this topic, it makes sense that they would perhaps set it up as a debate rather than um, just teaching the science straight up. Right, and there's uh, also uh, the Heartland Institute set out some in the materials, very slick materials to science teachers around the country in 2015. I saw that, it was very impressive. It looked like it came from the Sierra Club, uh, but the Heartland Institute is one of these organizations that put up billboards associating climate people with the Yuma bomber, and that, but then they did that in 2017, and the reaction uh, and read from climate, from teachers was different. Tell us about the reaction. Well, the, the Heartland Institute sent that book out in 2015, um, and then again in 2017. And in 2015, although you know, at the National Center for Science Education, we paid attention to it, and we, we sent out word to teachers that they shouldn't um, take this little booklet seriously. It didn't get much of a rise out of anybody. But boy, in 2017, I think it was right after Trump was elected, people just went ballistic that that this um, you know, really misleading information was being sent to teachers. Fortunately, um, the vast majority of teachers see right through it. Uh, it was a fairly, it was slick looking, but as soon as you started reading it, it was pretty clear that it was not uh, scientific. Um, but the title was Why Scientists Disagree About Global Warming. So the Heartland knows full well that just sowing that little bit of doubt is the most effective way to stop the conversation and by the stop way, the education about climate change. They hired the same PR firms that uh, did this for the tobacco industry to do it for the fossil fuel industry. You know, I, I would say basically war criminals, intentionally confusing the public about the most important subject affecting all of us and all of our survival. I mean, it's really criminal behavior. And it, uh, it, uh, it, it's not been effectively countered, as Ben was saying, by the scientific community. You know, we're at a big disadvantage because brain science shows that only the repetition of simple messages reaches people. And scientists are trained, understandably, to focus on uncertainty and complexity, and also they don't get uh, points from their peers for repeating themselves. So, <laughs> so the culture of science is now at odds uh, uh, with uh, educating the public about this emergency. Some scientists like Ben and others have emerged and are being very brave about this, and we really should all applaud them. Goebbels, uh, of course, talked about this. The big lie repeated enough becomes the truth. Well, the opposite is also true. But it has to be simple. I mean, if you talk to people around the country and you ask them to explain what we're doing to the atmosphere, very few people can do it. I, I consider that our failure in the activist and scientific uh, communities. You know, we are trapping heat on Earth, and so it's getting hotter. That's what's happening. But very few people can tell you that. So we do have to make that uh, more simple and more clear for people, and we have to make sure that that information reaches people in compelling ways. I mean, it's a very remarkable situation. It is truly an emergency. It's like being attacked by a foreign power. Everything is in peril. It, uh, and 
certainly the populace, nor the elites, are aroused uh, uh, sufficient to the magnitude of the problem. It's a solvable problem, largely. The worst can still be avoided. But we have no clear understanding that we're in an emergency. And a lot of the reason is the intentional spreading of these talking points. Now, of course, it's not just talking points. It is natural for people to say, well, hasn't the climate always changed before? (laughs) Because it has. But this stuff is very intentionally exaggerated and propagated by people who know what they are doing. They know that they're lying to people and deceiving people. It's really quite remarkable. David Fenton, there's also been some uh, changes recently in public opinion. You mentioned the number of people uh, who know about the scientific consensus, but the number of people, uh, Yale does a lot of polling on this, others. Tell us about some of the recent uh, trend lines and and public uh, polling, a number of people who are alarmed. So the, the very good news is that the weather is teaching people uh, the, the media isn't teaching them very much. The, 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 the television broadcast networks will barely ever even say the word climate change. It's really reprehensible. They're very cowardly about this. Newspapers are doing a good job, but people are noticing all the hurricanes and wildfires, and so the percentage of people that are alarmed about this issue in the last year has gone from 19 to 29%. That's a huge increase. Uh, And the percentage of Americans who believe that humans are changing the climate has gone up seven or eight points. It's still under 60%. Um, But, you know, even 30% alarmed, while that's a great development, it should be 80% alarmed. And then we'll do something about it. And Reed, a lot of the climate community, mainstream media is about dispersing facts, more facts, as if one more podcast or one more book or one more peer-reviewed journal would would make a difference. Um, But you say that facts are necessary and insufficient. I'd like you to talk about, you have a background in immunology, how, you know, vaxxers, there's no percentage, you know, certain people who are against think vaccinations cause uh, disease, no amount of facts is going to persuade them to change their minds. So draw that parallel between the anti-vaxxers and the climate skeptics. I'd rephrase it a little bit to say it's not so much that no amount of fact will change their mind. It's that no amount of facts coming from someone they don't trust will change their mind. Okay. Um, facts are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, information is is very important. Um, I wanted to go back when you were talking about we need to get this message across to people that uh, when I said before that 40 percent of teachers only 40% of teachers were aware of the consensus, you might hypothesize that those would be the 40% of teachers who are teaching climate change accurately in their classrooms. Mm. Um, and that's not the case. Mm. That, that um, saying that scientists agree, it correlates much more with your uh, surroundings and your political ideology right, right. than with how much you actually know about climate science. Right. And so... Um, what teachers know and what all good science teachers know is that the way people change their minds about things, the way they learn is to Mm -hmm. actually do it, to actually look at the data themselves, Mm -hmm. to look at the evidence themselves. And uh, we've developed a set of lessons that are focused directly around these misconceptions, like there's no consensus. The lesson has the students look at data from different kinds of measurements um, from different kinds of systems, whether it's the ocean or whether it's um, species where species live, uh, when flowers bloom, when tomatoes can be mm. planted in their area. And they look at all of those different kinds of data and then, and they come to their own understanding that the climate is really different than it was 100 years ago. And then they can start, and it takes one, one fact 
that they accept, one piece of evidence that they really understand for themselves, and then their minds are open to, to learning lots and lots more facts about it. But I hear a lot in science communications this sort of, if we just could say the words in exactly the right way, then we'd change everybody's minds. But I think um, it's much more a matter of having people engage with the evidence themselves. And, and the evidence is so powerful, as Ben said, that, that they will come to the correct conclusion. Yeah, I very much agree with that. You know, we were just doing focus groups uh, in, in North Carolina, uh, and what we found uh, is that people really want information about this. And when we would show people, like the very basic chart showing the correlation between temperature rises and CO2 levels, people were hungry just to see evidence about it. Now, of course, it, it does have to come from people from their own tribe in our deeply tribal society. And, and thankfully, there are now more uh, uh, people from the conservative side who are starting to speak out about this, and I think you'll see that intensify. You know, there's a bunch of Republican members of the House Climate Caucus now. Uh, there, a, a, a significant number of Republican mayors are speaking out. Um, it, within the Republican uh, intelligentsia, uh, uh, there are more people coming to terms with this. Uh, they, they also know they're, they're never going to get any young voters again if they don't deal with this. I mean, I think... The, the, the great news is that young people are finally on the move on this issue that's going to affect them more than anybody. You know, the Sunrise Movement, the, the Extinction Rebellion, um, this uh, remarkable woman from Sweden. Uh, Greta Thunberg, 16-year-old. Yeah. I want to ask yeah. you about her. Yeah. So th I think that, uh, that this movement of young people is, is going to make a very, very big difference. But it, it, we do have to keep simplifying this for people in a factual way. Facts are the only ethical thing to, to, to talk about. And, and facts don't work by themselves. They work when they're embedded in moral stories. And this is the ultimate moral story. Are we going to let a small group of incredibly greedy, powerful people ruin civilization probably forever? I mean, it's very Shakespearean, don't you think? <laughs> And Reed, you deal a lot with uh, confronting people who uh, the tension between evolution and uh, uh, you know people who have the, the flood narrative. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you confront that evolution versus science debate in, in schools and in advancing education. Yeah, I just again to follow up with what you were saying that um, you know the country, as we all know, is so deeply divided. You know, fifty-fifty red and blue. Um, well, fifty percent of our nation's science teachers are in those red states. Right. And so if you really want to, to change the next generation, it's supporting those teachers mm. so that they can teach climate change effectively in places where it, it can be very scary. Yeah, and dangerous, um, sure. To, to do. So that, that's what we try to do. And I think that that over time can make a big difference. Um, people trust their teachers generally. Yeah. So if the teachers do it right, they can really change change minds. And, and the same is true of evolution, that um, the conflict there is different. It's not uh, political ideology that's holding people back from accepting evolution. And it, it isn't um, a sort of orchestrated campaign of casting doubt in order to save prof profits. Um, but in a way, it's harder because it's, an, it's a true identity conflict between um, their religious beliefs and science. And, and if you're taught your whole life that if you accept evolution, that means you have to be an atheist. That evolution means there's no right, God. Right. Um, that's very threatening to, to a lot of people. And, and religion is a very important part of their lives. So you've got, you've got that to overcome, too. And that's true to some extent with climate change. If you're in 
you know, a West Virginia coal town, and everybody is really terrified that action on climate change is going to destroy their way of life. It's hard to be the first person who goes, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm all in on a carbon tax. <laughs> We're talking about climate myths at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are David Fenton, chairman of Fenton Communications, and Ann Reed, executive director of the National Center for Science Education. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, my name is Asha Kantralapalli. Um, I work in education, and I've got a question for you, Anne. It seems like the U.S. has a lot of climate skeptics, a lot of parents who are uh, skeptics. And uh, I know that you were saying just because we've got a lot of science teachers who maybe don't understand that there's a consensus in the scientific community um, about the research, still they can be effective teachers, um, teaching through experience, things like that. Is there any direction that you would recommend or, or resources or strategy uh, for reaching the teachers who don't, as well as uh, families? I'm thinking something like um, outreach for PDs, uh, free curriculum resources, things like that. I promise I didn't plant this person. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that's exactly what we're doing at, at the National Center for Science Education when it comes to reaching Teachers, um, as with pretty much any other uh, area of adopting a new technique or a new technology, you have 10 or 20% of teachers who are right on it. They're out there. They're looking for the best materials. They're putting them into practice in their classrooms. And then you have about 20% of teachers who are not going to do anything new unless you pay them vast quantities of money or threaten to fire them. And then you've got this great <laughs> bunch of teachers in the middle, 50%, 60% of teachers who are not actively looking um, for help and um, are not actively learning new techniques. And so what we're doing is taking teachers from that you know, top 10%, the superstar teachers, particularly from areas where climate change is difficult to teach about, and we are helping them develop a set of lessons, again, that get right at these misconceptions that their students and their students' parents are most likely to have, and bring those lessons to their peers in places like Oklahoma and Kansas and West Virginia and um, Wyoming and Idaho and all of the places where uh, acceptance of climate change is really low. Um, so that's how we're reaching the, those um, teachers is peer-to-peer. Um, and in terms of communities, um, there are a, a really large um, number of people, probably about 40% of people in America whose last encounter with science in any sort of sustained way was high school mm. and in many many parts of this country and that tends to overlap with the places where climate change isn't well accepted there really isn't any opportunity to engage with science and and so we equip graduate students in universities in those areas to go out and provide really fun uh, hands-on science activities um, for people in the community. They model how to talk about climate change and, and evolution in ways that don't get people's hair on fire. Um, very respectful, very empathetic, and most of all, very much welcoming people into um, experiencing science for themselves. And we hope that that will um, help reduce the resistance overall, m calm down the atmosphere that these teachers are teaching in so that it becomes easier for them to cover the topic accurately. Let's go to our next question. I'm John Keller from Burlingame. And expanding a little bit on the previous question, how is it that we can get people living in agricultural areas uh, interested and uh, understanding and supportive of uh, policy changes? Very often it seems that our agricultural areas are, are the greatest denialists, but also uh, areas that have the most to lose 
uh, from the impacts of, of climate change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and in addition, that's an industry that could be a very effective counterweight to the power of the fossil fuel industry if they would wake up to this. You know, the, the, there's no intentional program in this country to get more people in the farm states to understand this. That's the problem. I'm sure we could, but uh, there's, no, there's no program at scale to do that. So one thing I'd like to, 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 to suggest, we're in the center of the technology industry here in the Bay Area, and these companies now uh, reach billions of people all over the globe. They've become the primary means of information for people around the world. And they should help do science education on this issue. They could make a huge difference. They could reach everybody. And they could also make it a social norm so that in these areas where people are afraid to talk about it, it would become safer. Now, they're not doing it because they're afraid that it's a partisan issue. And I really think the time has come for them to get brave up and help teach people about this. And Reid, do you disagree about the uh, lack of efforts to reach people in agricultural parts of the country? Well, we're, we're certainly there. In fact, um, we started this whole community science effort in Iowa. And, and I would strongly push back on, on um, people in agriculture being denialists. That farmers know absolutely full well that the climate is changing. No question about it. And, and Catherine Hayhoe talks about this with farmers in um, where she teaches at Texas Tech in a very it, conservative yeah. part of Texas, that she'll go out and work with um, farmers to put in wind turbines to generate electricity on their farms. Mm -hmm. And these are people who are not the least bit interested in having an environmentalist come and tell them sure. that the climate is changing. But she says once they put in a turbine and they're saving some money and they're cutting down on their energy use, it, again, it's that one opening that they then become much more interested in other ways to save energy and what would happen if everybody did this and how could we all be you know, lowering you know, the amount of fossil fuels we use and they become open to learning more about the science. Well, let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm Annie Shi. Um, I'm a high school student at Saratoga High School and also co-president of the Green Team there. Um, so one of the biggest things that we run into is there are definitely a lot of passionate young people, but um, most of the students that you know we talk to basically say, okay, there's no hope anyways. So what are the two to three biggest um, international you know, pieces of action you think that really young people can hold on to and see as something to provide hope and you know, make measurable strides towards saving our planet? And what do you think is the chance that we actually survive. <laughs> you want to take that? <laughs> I'm happy to. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know, I know I'm a scientist, and so I'm, I'm really heavily biased towards data, but I think that it, humans generally cognitively are not so great at scale, <laughs> and they're not so great at time. And, and so it, when you think about, you know, either from kind of both directions, from the being insanely alarmed to being in total denial, um, if, if you can't get your hands on anything concrete, the problem just seems so big mm -hmm. and, and, and also so spread out over time that it's, that it's hard to get excited about it or, or, or it's tempting to say, I, I give up, I can't, I can't think about this. But if you take something like, there's a teacher in, in um, Idaho 
that takes his students up and they do a core sample from a tree mm. and they calculate, um, geez, they have to do a lot of math, how much carbon that tree fixes mm. in a year. And then they calculate how much carbon dioxide comes out of their car during a year of commuting to school. And, and he says, you can just see the light bulb go mm. on and the students go, wow, it takes a lot of trees to absorb all of the carbon dioxide that is coming out of our cars. But it's not infinite. Now it's a, now it's a number. Now you can say, well, it's going to take a million trees or a million fewer cars. But those are, those are things that you can actually kind of grab onto and say, okay, well, I'm going to drive less or I'm going to, you know, be, I'm going to become a, an engineer and work on developing the next generation of electric cars. To me, anyway, and maybe maybe everybody isn't this way. That it, when you have something concrete you can do, it helps to push away that sort of panic of of it being too huge to deal with. Greg Dalton has been talking about climate science and awareness. His guests were Anne Reed, executive director of the National Center for Science Education, and David Fenton, founder of Fenton Communications. Earlier in the program, Greg spoke with climate scientist Catherine Mock of Stanford University and Ben Santer of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.